What's going on, y'all? Welcome to episode three of the Generic Youth Media Brand Podcast. So I'm uploading this one a little late, actually a lot late. Uh, we originally streamed this one on the 30th, so you'll be hearing us talk about things as though they have just happened because when we were talking about it, it just had happened. Uh, but the guest for this time, without a whole lot of further ado, because we do get into it very quickly, uh, the guest for this one is Angad Singh, a uh, frequent guest on the former show and uh, hopefully a frequent guest uh, in the near future. Now, I'm going to say this. This episode is really long, a lot longer than we anticipated it being. But that being said, if this is a new topic to you, um, I think there's a lot of things that you're going to learn in this one. I definitely learned a lot just about the background of this movement and um, why things are moving in this very bizarre international chess game. Why they're moving the way that they are moving right now. So we're going to get beyond the headline because the headline is, as I'm going to say in just a moment, pretty incredible. But there's a lot behind it. That said, let's get into it. Yesterday, Ange just calls me and says, yo, can we talk about this? And, and sends me a link. India accidentally hired a DAA agent to kill sick American activists, federal prosecutors say. That is an incredible, that is a wild headline. And, and, and to back up, Anga, like, I remember seeing, Biden had said something about this maybe about a week ago, is that right? Yeah, but, yeah, there but, was, but there was it, some but, news that came out a week ago. Mm. And and, you know, I actually didn't follow it too, too closely then because it was a lot of it was um, like kind of reporting of sources and it wasn't as official as everything that came out yesterday. I mean, yesterday was truly a bombshell. Um, and as this headline like very clearly says, I mean, to accidentally hire an American federal agent to carry out a political assassination abroad is pretty much, I don't know, as royally of a royal of a screw up as it gets. I mean, this is this is, you know, OK, and, and we must preface all of this, this whole discussion with everything that's come out right now is an allegation. Yeah. Let, let the me, let me accused are thing. innocent. The accused are innocent until proven guilty. And that is a, a very key, important legal fact to know that there is no one who is guilty. There is no one who is guilty until they go through the courts, until the prosecutors and the attorneys on the defense, because that is how democracy works. And that's how our legal system works. So so that's the most important thing is this is currently allegations. But these allegations allegedly <laughs> Oh man, they are they are big ones. They are big ones because the people who are alleging them are quite legit. They are federal agents and they have a lot of evidence on the record. A lot. Yeah. So, let's I want to look we're going to look at the article for a second. Let's let's back up maybe a little bit. What the heck is happening? Who is involved? Give, give me, give me some background here. I mean, just reading. I, I think the thing here, maybe to, to keep in mind for a lot of people, is this wasn't on a lot of people's radar. 
truly was not. I really only saw the only people I really saw talking about this online anyway is, you know, accounts on Instagram directly connected to India or the diaspora. You know what I mean? Um, sick people. But it's, yeah. It, it, it wasn't really in the this, broader this consciousness has been, until just yesterday, really. This has been a news story that's been bubbling up and then getting buried uh, for the last several months. And there's been a lot going on in the world between Israel and Palestine, um, you know, domestically here in the United States. But for six in the six diaspora globally, uh, this is a very serious issue. For Indians in the Indian diaspora globally, this is also a very serious issue because what's been going on since this summer is a string of killings that have happened outside of India this summer, three leaders, you say you could say, of the Khalistan movement have died. Some due to mysterious health complications that the community is alleging is poisoning, but you know, that hasn't fully been investigated. That was a, a you know, a man about 35 years old, TV news anchor out of the UK. Um, there was Hardeep Singh Nidjar, who was the president of his Gurdwara in Canada, in Surrey, which is actually the biggest Sikh community outside of India. Mm. And he was the president of the biggest Gurdwara, biggest congregation there. And he was gunned down by assassins 34 times. He shot 34 times in the parking lot of that Gurdwara. These, these killings everything that's been going on has got folks really concerned. And recently, just yesterday, the Department of Justice, the U.S. Uh, Southern District of New York Federal Court unseals an indictment against an Indian national who was involved in an alleged murder-for-hire plot of a New York citizen. New York City citizen, an American citizen, an American Sikh, and a prominent activist for Khalistan, the idea of an independent Sikh homeland, uh, and goes into great detail about how the Indian government is essentially hiring criminals both at home and abroad to carry out its covert clandestine operations to suppress political dissent. And some of the charges in there are quite big because yeah. it's really important to remember India is the world's largest democracy. America is the world's oldest democracy. And if this is how the world's biggest democracy sees fit to engage with political dissent in the world's oldest democracy, I think there's a bit of a mismatch on what it means, what democratic norms mean. That is an extremely diplomatic way to put it. Um... So let, let's, you know what, I, I want I want to set some terms in here. I think there's some people watching and listening who are very aware of what you're talking about. I think we can also set the table a little bit just for some people who this is this is new for. Um, the idea of a sick homeland, right? The idea of an independent homeland. Where would this be? What does that involve? You know, please explain like I'm a white toddler. <laughs> 
please explain, explain like I'm a white like I'm please, a white toddler. Please explain like I'm a white five. Please explain. I think that's what we need right now. You know, right. we, some listen, man. Sometimes we got to do that. You you know the drill. You know how it is with with some of this stuff. You yeah. know for for yeah. things we so both. So please are explain in, like yeah. I'm a white toddler. What is the concept of an independent sick homeland? Yeah. So I'm gonna be the first person to admit right here on these streams that I myself don't know everything about the context of Khalistan, the idea of an independent Sikh homeland. But if we're going to start, it's got to go back into history. And we're going to do a little brief history lesson here, right? So the idea of an independent Sikh homeland that goes by Khalistan, I think, firstly gained its peak in around the mid-1980s in India and the 1990s where there was a movement to create that independent homeland led by a separatist militant insurgency that the Indian government then put down through a genocidal counterinsurgency. These are really big words. They're really heavy words, and they carry a lot of weight. Um, there's been a lot of attempts in... Uh, since then to sort of suppress the facts, wage a disinformation war, and really obfuscate the sort of history around it. So even me, as somebody who is someone born to a survivor of that genocide, um, finding out the true scale of that history is really difficult. But the, the idea of an independent sick homeland you know, so so first of all, I wanna I wanna ask, you know, I think most Westerners, when they think about India, when they think about South Asia more broadly, they see it in this post-colonial lens, where India was a nation that was born around 75 years ago. It was born after 1947 when it gained independence from the British Raj, from the British Empire. And to do that, people of a nation that is now 1.4 billion people, in addition to Pakistan and Bangladesh, which split up into their own countries, mm -hmm. had to all unite to get the British out. And it was a massive movement, right? Because when the British came to colonize yeah. India, or the Indian subcontinent, maybe is a better way to, to phrase it. Right, what we now call, yeah. They came... They came and conquered, I believe, 518 different kingdoms. They divided and played these kingdoms against each other, and they used a series of alliances to sort of monopolize control over and consolidate power over the Indian subcontinent. So prior to colonization, this place was a very vast array of many different kingdoms peoples, cultures, and they all sort of had their own political identities and, and whatnot. But fast forward to the struggle against the British and, you know, the idea that India is an independent country and it splits from Pakistan. Essentially, the, the, the main debate was Muslims wanted their own country. Right. So they decided we're going to go to Pakistan. They decided we're going to make Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh and Pakistan. Uh, and Sikhs, as 
a very small group, but a very important group in that freedom struggle. I mean, there are accounts that sort of say about three quarters of the amount of people who died in the Indian Revolution against the British, who were awarded death sentences, who were awarded life sentences in prison, were Sikhs, even though Sikhs today make up less than 2% of India's population. Sikhs have historically been known as warriors and fighters because the region we're from, Punjab, is split between India and Pakistan. And that region is the only land route. And then again, being the, you know, Sikh not being a an ethnicity specifically, but certainly tied to, you know, tied to an area, obviously, you know, being a religion, but, you know, having pretty deep, really, truly deep cultural ties, which you would know better than I do. But, you know, to make that distinction. But I think, you know, I mean, we need we need to know or we need to recognize again that a lot of times we look at, you know, outside India, we'll look at India as, oh, it's always been like this and it's one place and every single person, everybody's Indian. That's just not not, true, right? Everybody is not Indian. India is the most diverse place in the world. And that's why I love India. I mean, I I go when I used to go to that country as a kid, it was so fascinating to me, right? Because where I grew up in Georgia in the South, I was a representative for India, whether I liked it or not, because there was barely any Indians when I was growing up. I was the only Sikh in my high school and one of a handful of Indians. So I was constantly having to explain not only who are Sikhs and what's our history, but then what's India and what's India's history as well. And that's what kind of got me into this whole career of being a storyteller in the first place. But that's sort of so. So let me just sort of get back onto track where we were. Right. So. So India gets its independence from the British. India and Pakistan split up as a country. And in that process, India persuades the Sikhs to join us. Join India because this is where it'll be better for you. And one of the political things that that achieves is it helps India push its western border further west into Punjab. Because prior to colonization, the last one of the last empires, if not the last empire that the British managed to topple was the newly formed Sikh empire, which existed for a very brief time in history. And while Sikhs were still, even in that empire, a minority of the population, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, everyone lived in relative harmony because in Sikhi, in our faith, there is a core principle that the first guru, Guru Nanak, believed in, which is Nakoi Hindu na Musulman, which means there is no Hindu, there is no Muslim. We're all children of the same creator. And so that ethos was truly, you know, ingrained in that empire. And the British had to do a lot of propaganda to sow religious hatred between Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs in order to divide and rule that empire, which was one of the reasons why it took so long for them to topple that regime. Now, fast forward through the whole independence struggle, there is a lot of animosity between Hindus and Muslims. And so Muslims decide to go one place. Sikhs and Hindus decide we're going to all sort of kind of go to India mm-hmm. and Punjab, the traditional homeland of the Sikhs, the Sikh empire, all of that gets split roughly down the middle. And 
most of that is a very violent and brutal part of history where, you know, more than a million people are massacred, 15 million people displaced. And most Sikhs had to, including my ancestors, had to migrate from their ancestral villages in the Pakistani side of Punjab, many Sikhs, sorry, uh, and they had to come over and find new homes in India. And so that's a big part of the reason why my family actually doesn't have land or family now in Punjab because they migrated from Pakistani Punjab and they had to settle in central India and different parts of India because there wasn't sort of a space for them or that they had to just sort of make their new lives. So, so our people have been between many nation states for many, many generations. And how, so where, so, so that idea of an independent Sikh homeland, when does that start to arise? Well, it's not totally clear to me because I haven't admittedly read enough of my own history. And it's a lot because I grew up here and that history isn't taught. But, but what I do know is that between independence and around the 1960s, there was a lot of promises made to Sikhs about mm -hmm. their ability to sort of be autonomous. The first Indian prime minister kind of said something along the lines of, he even said, you know, if we ever screw you guys over, Sikhs are known as brave fighters. They can sort of fight for their rights if they if right. push came to shove. Right. Now, I'm not quoting that exactly, but there is a quote that is very similar to that, mm. that the first Indian prime minister said. And what Sikhs, from my understanding, thought that they signed up for when they joined India well, over the decades, India started to walk back those promises. They started, they split the state of Punjab, the Indian side of Punjab, up into three different states and a union territory, taking away a big city and literally like two major chunks. So Punjab was reduced to one third of the size that it used to be. And that was already half of what it once was as a united Punjab prior to, you know, British colonization and all that. So now Sikhs are sort of concentrated into this somewhat of an ethno state. Now Punjab in India is the only Sikh majority state. Um, and it's, you know, less than 2% of the population. Um, and a lot of political things, you know, with the splitting up of this land, then water rights of so Punjab means the land of five rivers. Those five rivers... Well, three of them went to Pakistan in the partition and the two that sort of remained in the Indian side of Punjab. Now, India was trying to funnel those rivers to neighboring states to help their agriculture. Meanwhile, Punjab was sort of saving India from from famine, which is a whole documentary series I did for Vice um, yeah. about the farmers protests that recently happened. So there was agrarian agitations that started to happen. There were political agitations that started to happen. And there was this sort of idea of Punjabis are being screwed over by the center of India. And that that sort of starts to take root in the 60s and 70s. There is a movement led by Sikhs, uh, and it, it's a political goal they want passed. It's something called the Anandpur Resolution. And, and that was a list of 10 sort of resolute like agreements that they wanted the federal government to acknowledge. And the top three of those agreements were pretty simple. One, the number one thing was India is a sort of collection of many different states. And what was happening at that time was that prime minister was really consolidating power and centralizing power. And so Sikhs and 
Punjabis together, because not all Punjabis are Sikhs and not all Sikhs are necessarily Punjabi, um, Punjabi being the ethnic group, Sikh being a faith, but many, most Sikhs are Punjabi. Mm-hmm. Um, they would sort of band it together and said, you know, because of all of these things that have happened in the past, we want more states' rights. We don't want all of this power that was we thought was supposed to be in the hands of the state to be going to the center. So that's number one. Number two is we want our water rights. You guys have been taking our rivers and diverting them to other states to boost their agriculture, and we're kind of getting screwed over. We want our water rights. So this was really a farmer's movement. Number three was a Sikh political ask, and that was Sikhism is its own distinct faith. And today, under India's legal framework, Sikhs are still technically constituted as Hindus. Now, where does that come from, right? Mm. Sikhism is a very recent religion. It was sort of founded in 1469 when Guru Nanak, our first guru, was born. But it's not like he just was like, I'm starting a new religion, right? He was born to a Hindu family. Mm -hmm. He started challenging some of those Hindu traditions that he didn't agree with. But he drew heavily from Hindu, Muslim, anybody that he thought was smart and was speaking about love and the idea of a one God and sort of this unified sort of existence and Everything that was in his philosophy, he just, you know, he accepted that and he didn't really care what the label was. And it wasn't until two to three hundred years later that the Sikh identity as a nation, as a Panth, as we call it, was formalized by the last living guru, the 10th guru. And at that point, Sikhs were facing, you know, two of the Sikh gurus had been martyred mm-hmm. by, you know, uh, emperors and rulers of India, Mughal emperors, um, who, you know, wanted to suppress their freedom of religion. They sacrificed their life for that. Sikhs were being persecuted. They were being massacred. They were being hunted down in forests. There were bounties on their heads. So the idea of Sikhs being a nation of people really formalized in around the 1700s. And that sort of, you know, I think when has existed in the collective Sikh identity since then. And it's a big reason why we wear our turban and we look the way we do. It's a commitment to our people and to a sort of nationality in a way and identifying with that nation of people. Hmm. Um, and so so the, the ask in the 80s was very clear. It was very distinct. It was, we want to be recognized as separate from Hindus. But the Indian state did not recognize that, and it still continues to not acknowledge that today. Uh, they very much believe Sikhs are a part of Hindus, and that's it's a whole rabbit hole that we can get go down, and probably that's for another stream. <laughs> but you know, essentially, there has been many, many attempts uh, for uh, gra- at the grassroots level to try to co op parts of Sikhism into the Hindu identity, and you know, on the other hand, Sikh. Sikhs who are pro Khalistan, Sikhs who are pro the idea of an independent homeland are very staunch generally, you know, in the belief that we are separate from Hindus and we need that discernment. So so it is like a very big uh, political sort of point of contention. Right. Um, so so those were the three main political asks. And 
that movement sort of came to a head in the week of the first week of June in 1984. And from what I've understood about history, yeah, what I've understood about history, right, is there were some factions of six that started asking about an independent homeland at that point. There were others who were just trying to do a sort of more secular farmers, pan-Punjabi movement to get these rights. And they all sort of coalesced and they had promised to start this massive agitation, this massive movement in those first that first week of June 1984. And that's when the Indian government under the prime minister Indira Gandhi decided to launch a full-scale military invasion of the most holy Sikh shrine to root out militant leaders who had taken shelter there and who had started to live there over the past several years. Um, and there had been, you know, disputes and various factions of Sikh groups and folks that were, you know, adjacent to Sikh groups and whatever, like splinter groups killing each other in protests. And it's all a quite complicated history. But, but that invasion of that temple where they, you know, killed a bunch of separatists, sure, who were fighting back, who had stockpiled arms um, and who did fight back against the Indian military. But they also conduct, conducted that operation in a very important Sikh holiday where lots of pilgrims were there, where these people who were also planning to sort of start this political agitation that same week clearly got the message that we will come, we will massacre you to put this movement down. And what that did, not only was it a huge massacre and it also happened in many other Gurdwaras around Punjab at that time, but it it sort of sparked an insurgency. And for the next 10, 12 years, sick young people took up arms against the state because they felt the state had committed one of the most egregious violations by invading the most holy Sikh shrine, the most holy Sikh Gurdwara that exists. Um, and, and so that sparked a militancy. And the, truly the movement for Khalistan, and, and from what I understand, mm. is even more galvanized by that violence that the state perpetrated. Later on, Sikh bodyguards of the prime minister assassinate her. That leads to even more genocide across the country. And for a whole decade, I mean, there's a very dark chapter of Indian history um, where, you know, the state is abducting, disappearing secretly, um, sort of, uh, you know, cremating the bodies of young Sikhs in Punjab in in a genocidal attempt to put down this insurgency, that genocidal counterinsurgency. And, and so that is, that is the idea of an independent Sikh homeland. So that largely gets quelled through those very brutal tactics. To back up, I mean, you know, when this invasion happens, there were people who were, who were more, hey, we're militant. We're really about, you know, if there's violence coming, hey, let's go. There were also other people who came in who were just, hey, maybe there's something we can do here that is you know, more neutral, more peaceful, and they get caught up in that. And so, of course, you know, those people get attacked at the same time in a holy place on a holy holiday. You get a bunch of people who grow up and say, none of what happened is okay. We're even, you know, if we weren't upset before, we're upset now. And if we didn't feel like this centralized government hates us before, we certainly feel like that now. 
right? And and that only continues. Yeah. That only continues, which I think is an important, Definitely. important part uh, to remember. There's there's so much in the background, um, so much history, and you know why why does the idea of a sep you know who who wants a separate homeland? Why would that? Why would you care? Why would any religious group want a, an entirely different area? Who cares? Well, when you hear about what happened in 84 since then before then it starts to make sense by the way if people are unfamiliar if you know the the phrase punjabi if the if the uh if the idea that there's an area called punjab is new information to you um we don't have time to explain all of it i will just say that if you've ever seen anything culturally interesting at all out of india there's about a one in two chance that it's affected by the cult. Like if you've ever seen a Bollywood movie, they, like the the culture is so. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. Here, Punjabi for, Punjabis for, for being, have punched above their the well above, above their the number as yes. a cultural heavyweight for sure, for yeah. sure. Um, and and you know that that goes back in the history. Just to explain to folks who maybe don't know what Punjab is, you know, when we when we're in world history class, whatever. We uh, we learn about these ancient civilizations, the Sumerians. There's like the one in China, the, you know, the one in the sort of Indus River Valley, the Harappa civilization. That is precisely in the Punjab region. That is where it comes from. So, so the the history of Punjab and its culture and its people it goes very very long, very very deep, many many millennia prior to Sikhism and yeah. Sikhs coming and existing in, in the way we do. But um, but yeah, so so you have Sikhs and this sort of mass exodus that happens after the 80s, after mm -hmm. the insurgency, the militancy, and the genocide that is perpetrated by the state to put it down. And you have, I would, I would venture, go out on a limb to say, any Sikh that you meet in the diaspora, they either know or are personally related to somebody that survived this or a victim of the Sikh genocide. Yeah. It's the sort of violence of the 80s. I mean, this is very recent. I mean, this is something my mom survived, right? This is something uh, her house was burned down by a mob, uh, you know, and she wasn't even in Punjab. She lived in another Indian state. And and it's it's a really, really recent thing that Basically, every Sikh that is in the diaspora is very intimately familiar with, even even though it's something we we struggle to still talk about within our own community because of the amount of violence that sort of it was. Um, but a lot of Sikhs move to you know Western countries, and a lot of folks who are strongly aligned with the idea of Khalistan, a lot of folks who really believe that there's no other option but an independent Sikh homeland, they're the ones that, you know, decide, like, we can't be in India anymore. Like, we are being persecuted. Our family members are being abducted and, you know, disappeared by the police. Like, there's no future, no hope for us here, so they yeah. get out. And so the idea of the independent Sikh homeland, it's really really underground to the point where a lot of people don't even consider it a movement anymore in Punjab but in the diaspora it has really strong support in certain pockets right and that is 
precisely because of the way it was suppressed. Um, and so that kind of brings us to the headlines. That yeah. kind of brings us to where we are today, the reason we're on this stream, because the guy that India tried to kill, the guy that India tried to hire a hitman to, to murder in New York City, he runs this group called Six for Justice, which is a terrorist outfit, according to India. He is a terrorist, according to India. But he is essentially organizing referendums for Khalistan. Uh, non-binding referendums, mind you. So just a vote in different communities across the world, in the Sikh diaspora. And I think he's also trying to do it in Punjab, but that's a little bit more difficult for many reasons. Um, but in the diaspora, he's organizing these votes. And this summer, what's going on is in the biggest Sikh community in the diaspora, which is Surrey, British Columbia, Canada, in the biggest Gurdwara in that community, they're planning this referendum, they're organizing it. And in the midst of that organization is the assassination of the president of that Gurdwara. And Canada then comes out, Justin Trudeau comes out a few months later and says, we have reasons to believe that there's a credible link to the Indian government being involved in this murder. And then the headlines that come out just yesterday really yeah. further put evidence to what Trudeau said, because it's really just a lot of evidence here uh, that the United States is now coming forth with that, yes, the Indians are hiring criminals abroad mm -hmm. to assassinate political dissidents. Because this guy who was, who was killed, he was organizing these referendums. This guy who's, sorry, the, the, the man who was killed in, in, in Surrey, he was organizing that local referendum, but the man who was attempted uh, to be murdered in New York City, he is the one that's organizing these referendums around the world. Yeah. And and even just to back up, referendums, I mean, this is basically people getting together and voting to release a document. It's a one-question referendum. Yeah. It's a one-question referendum always, and it's should there be Khalistan, yes or no. What yeah. they want to do is give it to the UN as documentation. Look, in the diaspora, this support, the support for, for this thing is this big or the, not this big. Right. So, and, and, you know, I think also, as you said, you know, the largest, um, you know, community is, you said in British Columbia, right? In Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, worth keeping in mind that people may not realize this. I think the third most spoken language in Canada, right? Yeah. And it's, it's a really because large part. Punjabis really, are the biggest country. migrant yeah. group. Mm -hmm. in Canada. They're the biggest migrant in Canada. And actually, Canada is the most sick country in the world. Uh, wow. I recently figured that out. It's, uh, yeah, because in India, I think six make up about 1.7% of the population. But in Canada, they're about 2.2% of the population. Right. Um, so yeah, the, there's about, I think, more than 700,000 six in, uh, in Canada at the moment. So it's a, it's a, you know, pretty significant group out there. I think until just yesterday, like I said at the beginning, I don't think I wasn't seeing a whole lot of talk about this other than very specifically, you know, diaspora communities online, you know, and 
And of course, there's so many things happening in the world. I mean, look at what's happening in Congo. Look what's happening, you know, in Palestine. I mean, there's so many things, obviously, to pay attention to. But then this happens, and then all of a sudden, I think a lot of people say, hold on a second, because let's be super clear, super, super clear about what's happening here. The accusation that the United States government is making is that India, acting, somebody acting under the auspices officially of the Indian government, attempted to assassinate an American citizen on American soil. The accusation further is that they totally fumbled it, which is, like, I, I, don't, I don't want to cause light to this, but there's, there's parts of this, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, man, like there's parts of it that are, it's, I don't want to say funny. It's, I don't want to say, because it's not it's, funny. It was funny, man. <laughs> it's not funny, but okay, I laughed. All right, all right, I laughed. All right. I laughed. Absolutely, Dexter. It, it was mind-boggling, right? And maybe we can, you know, sort of get into some of this. Like, I, I sent you some of these links. So you sent me a bunch of documents. What do you want me to pull up, man? We'll we'll go through it. We'll look at all of these. Let, what do you want to look at? Let's uh, let's hop right into the indictment. I think um, it is it is pretty wild. These are all, uh, you know, charges that have been now unsealed because. I suppose it's now in the public interest to to make clear what the United States government has in terms of a case against India. Um, and these are charges and a foil plot to assassinate a U.S. citizen in New York City. So let me, let me also yeah, if you can head on, on over. Let me let me back up real quick. I want to sure. also remind people. Now, remember, Modi came through and Modi had not been in the States, wasn't allowed in the States for the longest Prime Minister of India was just invited over as a guest diplomatically into Okay, US. okay. So so the timeline of all of that is crazy, right? Because yeah. these assassination attempts, these assassinations are all going on right around this prime visit, this this historic visit, right? So Biden is the first president who invites Modi to receive full diplomatic honors on an official state visit. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, just a, a decade ago, not even Modi wasn't allowed in the country because, uh, the United States, like, a I don't know, some agency in the United States has basically like flagged, you know, his role that full disclaimer, the Indian Supreme court says he was not guilty for his role in the assassination uh, or not the assassination, the, the mass murder of thousands of Muslims in his home state of Gujarat, where he was the presiding chief minister sort of governor of that state not technically governor chief minister is the term they use there but yeah so so modi wasn't even allowed in the united states and his meteoric rise yeah. to being this face of hindu nationalist politics in india and this really popular guy i mean you know son of a tea seller rising from the you know the streets and and, and making his way to the top office you know really and and look like I don't want to say I'm sympathetic to the Hindu nationalist movement because there's a lot they're getting wrong, but the energy he's tapped into is very powerful because India, and I don't want to even refer to Hindus as a monolith because they're such a diverse group of people, of course, but yeah. Indians, Hindus, they have been colonized by Mughals, by Islamic invaders, they've been colonized by the British, and they really feel that our time has come. We are a, 
a force. We are a civilization and we need to be recognized on the world stage. And so what they see in Modi is this leader who is very just he he is India first at all costs. But I mean, he, all he, for, costs for a lot of people, he of feels com- like he feels like finally. Finally. He feels like finally, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Like finally, we have a a strong guy who will represent us and not be afraid to to do what is needed to do to keep India safe, to project India's strength. That is why he's so popular, right? And and that is precisely why so many people were firstly there in support of Modi's visit. So many Indian Americans, but also so many people were there protesting against him. Because they know his track record. They know even though India has, and the Supreme Court doesn't say he, he, you know, sort of said he doesn't have anything to do with this massacre of Muslims in 2002 in Gujarat, that there is these documentaries that the BBC have done that kind of say otherwise. And that gets banned in India. He's increasingly clamped down on the free press. He's doing a lot to suppress political opposition. And, And one of the main things that, you know, is is really worth understanding the context of all of this is he came to power in his first term in 2014 on this sort of Hindu nationalist message. He consolidated power even more largely in 2019 in his second election victory when he promised to be India's guardian. The word was Chokidar, India's guardian against foreign terror, because at that time, mm. just months prior to the election, um, a suicide bomber in Kashmir, the most sort of disputed region between India and Pakistan, claimed the lives of dozens and dozens of Indian security forces. And that was seen as this massive sort of terroristic attack on India and its sovereignty and its security. And he said, we're going to keep India safe. He launched fighter jets, I think for like the first time into to Pakistani territory, maybe since like the wars that had fallen happened and, you know, bombed targets there. Um and, and sort of projected himself as India's guardian, his savior. And where are we now? Hmm. Well, Kashmir has been quelled. He had take, stripped their rights, their special autonomy, sort of militarized the state, locked it down both through the pandemic and even prior to that, cut off the internet, did all sorts of things, uh, you know, to where like all these international groups are calling Kashmir this open air prison in a way. Um, which that but might sound familiar to some people who've been paying attention to stuff in other regions, right? Hearing the words "open air prison" that doesn't might sound that very might sound good. familiar. Yeah, 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 and uh, and that's sort of been pacified to a large extent. And so, ahead of this next election, what a lot of people are saying is Modi's leaning into this narrative of foreign Khalistani terrorists that are threatening Indian security. And is and his Hindu nationalist base are embracing this regime's willingness to do whatever it takes at whatever cost to keep India safe. And that means crush dissent anywhere. That means take care of these so-called terrorists abroad by any means necessary. And the yeah. United States officially, uh, at least this part, uh, you know, the Justice Department uh doesn't agree that that is a way to go about business and so they absolutely they and you know let, let's listen let's take all oh, whoo man i mean let's back up let's take all this with a huge grain of salt 
truckload of salt because, uh, you know, again, we're not just saying allegedly because we think it's funny. We're saying allegedly because, look, man, um, I don't know if you've ever experienced a situation in which or read about a situation, shall we say, in which a government has lied or a government has done something that seemed convenient at the time. And so please do feel free to be skeptical of what the government of India is saying. Also feel free to be skeptical of what the United States is saying. You know, please, please feel free. This is, this is part of the job that we do is, you know, we're, we're skeptical of everybody. And so feel free to follow along with us. Absolutely. In that. But here is what is being said. And here is the background of it. Right. So, so these, these charges. So again, I want to, I want to get dropped. back. Yeah, 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 yeah. These, these charges are tough, right? These, but they are charges at the moment. But, but in this indictment, if you can just pull that up, I'm trying to find the specific thing, right? So somebody had put in the comments here, um, you know, this was all sort of happening in the backdrop of Modi's visit to, uh, to the United States on this first official diplomatic visit. And the evidence in this indictment specifically points to this guy who's charged telling his, you know, the, the, the American federal agent who he thought was the hitman, yo, you got to chill. Let's go cold for like 10 days because they knew that Modi was coming to America and they didn't want to attract attention then. And so it is very, there is evidence even in this whole thing where they're saying, uh, you know, you got to chill out. Um, like, yeah. uh, you know, wait, wait till our queue. And then, and then other points, you know, it's like, okay, we got to get this done, get it done now. I mean, there's literally lines in this indictment. So I was this reading is, this yesterday and my mind was getting blown. So this long, this 15 page PDF on justice.gov that, you know, the DEA had dropped. This is the indictment that we're looking at right now. So again, charges United States of America versus Nikol Gupta, aka Nick. Let's so let's let's get down all the way. So it's buried down in here in okay. Yeah, first so somebody thought. on my Instagram actually had a had a really good question yeah. and I just mm -hmm. want to address that real quick. Was, Go ahead. Are they going to bring charges? So, so who are these charges against and who is sort of involved? So let me let me sort of break down uh, what's going on in this indictment, right? So the indictment is against somebody called Nikhil Gupta, right? So this is this, in all caps, you see Gupta. Gupta is an Indian national. Gupta is based in India. Um, so actually, Dex, if you, if you don't mind, just scrolling up to the top so we can just explain who is sure. this guy in the indictment? So who is Gupta? Who is the guy that's being charged? Gupta is an Indian national. Um, and Gupta is uh, somebody who was recruited by an identified Indian government senior field officer. Right. So so the U.S. has de decided not to name that government officer. And the question in my chat uh, on Instagram essentially was, are they going to charge this this government employee as well? So I don't know the answer to that uh, is my answer, but I believe there's probably some sort of diplomatic immunity that prevents government employees. But also this government employee, uh, per the indictment, was not in the United States. He was in India, as is Nikhil Gupta. Nikhil Gupta is also an Indian national who is in India. So this plot is being directed from India. And what Nikhil Gupta does is he is somebody who is self-described um, 
in messages as somebody who has ties with international weapons and drug trafficking. And he essentially agrees to help out this government agent, this uh, intelligence security management government agent, uh, in orchestrating this assassination. And so what Gupta's role is, is reaching out to associates, to criminal associates in the United States, I believe in the United States. It doesn't yeah. specify where, but you know, we we know it's D, somebody who ends up to essentially be a government informant. It's it's a, a snitch, as it were. Uh, so he reaches out to somebody who he thinks is you know a criminal associate that can help set him up with a hitman. But that guy is actually a government informant, and so that government informant sets up Gupta with a DEA agent. And that DEA agent poses as a hitman and eventually establishes that one-on-one connection with Nikhil Gupta. And so that's sort of the opening of this. And why did Gupta even decide that he wanted to get involved with this international plot? It wasn't for, you know, just because he was like personally had a grudge or didn't have a grudge. I mean, I don't know, maybe he did. Uh, But Gupta was facing criminal charges in India. And this government agent that reaches out to him says, buddy, if you can help me orchestrate this assassination, I will get your name cleared. And so he is basically getting an all clear from an Indian government agent who's probably getting these orders from somewhere even higher up, you know, to, to, to pursue this sort of assassination. Because this isn't a lone assassination. This is we have to view these in the string of deaths that have happened of six separatist activists outside of India, in Pakistan, in the UK, in Canada, and now in the United States, an attempt is made. Uh, so, so this is all part of a, a much bigger string of events that's going on. Okay, let, let me get this straight, man. There's, there's, a guy, there's a guy who is a criminal in India, and a, an Indian government official, while they're still in India, goes to him and says, hey, you're about to do some hard time. I can take care of that for you if you agree to set up killing somebody in the States that I don't like. If you agree to, to handle something for me, get rid of somebody I, I want to get rid of. Right. Is, is that what you're saying here? Is that what the allegation yeah. is here? Okay. Exactly. You, you, exactly re- you realize I'm not sure if you realize this, everybody. That's just the plot of Cyber City Oedo 808. Like that's an anime plot. You realize <laughs> this, right? This is a literal anime plot. Let, let, let me look at this. Cyber City 080808 is a 1990 cyberpunk original video animation series created by Madhouse and directed by Yoshiaki Kawajiri, set in the year 2808 in the city of Oedo, Tokyo. It tells the story of three criminals who were enlisted into fighting crime, slightly different, in exchange for reducing their sentences to the point where they are able to earn their freedom. But effectively, what happens is the they say, hey, yo, go knock this guy off and I'll take some years off your sentence. Yeah. If this doesn't sound real, is what I'm saying. It's, it's, this sounds so, like the so plot of an anime. Of paragraph a movie or 10. Something like this. Yeah. It yeah, is yeah. the plot of a movie, bro. And, and like, I feel like I want the, 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 I want dibs on the IP for this movie. Okay. Cause this is crazy. <laughs> um, go to paragraph 10 of this indictment. 
on or about May 12, 2023, CC1, aka the identified, like the US government knows this Indian government official, but they're not naming him out of like a courtesy to their, you know, counterparts in India. CC1 notifies Gupta that his criminal case has, quote, already been taken care of, and, quote, nobody from Gujarat police is calling. Coincidentally, Gujarat is Prime Minister Narendra Modi's home state. Right. Um, no shade to my Gujaratis, bro. I love I've good I love Gujarati food. I love Gujarati culture. Y'all dance nice. Y'all eat good food. <laughs> One of my best we're, friends growing up was Gujarati. So we're not. We're not no, we're not. We're not implying anything. We're not saying anything. No hate here. Like, listen, actually, one India. Like, bring everybody together. This is not what this is about. All love. This is about some all wild love. allegations. All that, that's all we're saying. Yes, but. It is just an interesting coincidence that the criminal they hire comes from the, the state of the prime minister because, you know, there's probably connections, uh, allegedly. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, he's saying nobody from the police is calling. It's, quote, all clear and, quote, nobody will ever bother you again. Now, this is May 12th, well before, like, the wheels are in motion for this assassination plot, just because this guy has kind of agreed to to do this we have this senior government official basically giving this known criminal or man facing criminal charges i don't know if that makes him a criminal or not mm-hmm. somebody facing somebody with known ties to international drug and weapons charges yeah they they've basically given him an all clear so now this guy this is why he's doing it right like we have this sort of motive on nikhil gupta's part he's trying to clear his name in india and so he decides he's got to, you know, engage some associates in the United States. So I think we can scroll a little bit down into this. Um, one thing that, you know, some folks in the comment section of the TikToks and, and, and Reel I made the other day, was like, I, I only mentioned, um, you know, there's this photo. So, but, but before we get to the photo, yeah. the government agent tells Gupta, we're ready to pay. $150,000 or the offer will go higher depending on the quality of work and if it's done as soon as possible, right? So this is May 29th. This is like months before the, you know, the, the Biden Modi visit is getting set up at this point. Mm-hmm. And so they're saying, get this done ASAP. Uh, if you do it clean, do it good up to $150,000, maybe more. And what I, what I feel is the most Indian sort of barking shit ever. <laughs> like gupta like a good guy negotiates it you know he gets 100k and i'm sure his handler must have been so happy he's like oh you got me the 50k discount like yo like it was wild to me i'm like reading like no like they're 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 ready to pay 150 for a head but like my guy's getting it on a bargain for 100 i'll give you the best price i'll give you the best price come on yeah give you the best price and no like those vibes are like so legit like throughout this thing and we'll we'll find some of these quotes later it's it's wild right like you know he's the 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 gupta is like constantly telling the undercover agent like you know there'll be more work there'll be more work like let's establish a good relationship like you know like that's the priority here like lots to do like it's wild right like because i'm laughing but underneath all of that are sikhs in the united states and canada who they're trying to kill yeah, like, well, this is I mean, the work. It's dark. It's, you know, a hundred thousand is a lot, but it's not. 
it's, it's so cheap. It's, it's, it's so it's cheap. It's truly not a lot of money. You know what I mean? I mean this because is... the effect that yeah. an assassination like this has is so chilling. It's so chilling. It's like it's not just a person who's killed who's quieted down. It's so many people who just are made to feel unsafe in their own homes. Mm-hmm. Even they fled India, they fled the genocide, they thought they could get away from it all. And this is just part two. This is a new chapter of it that these extrajudicial, extra legal methods of suppressing political dissent have now showed up to these Western democracies, to your new countries where you're a citizen of, and you can't do shit about it. I mean, it's yeah. pardon the French. It is, it is really, really scary. So, so in terms of cost efficiency, had this succeeded, had they not been caught, because clearly this is about to be the biggest hundred thousand dollar mistake India probably has made in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, they, this could have been a very cost-efficient way of achieving your your goals abroad. You're just hiring low-level, hiring low-level gangsters, you know, people that are just probably know from like, yeah, we we brought some guns on t- into y'all, we we got some drugs over here to y'all. Like, you know, people people do anything. And essentially, what it is is what's happened here is okay. So government handler has told Gupta we're willing to pay up to hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Gupta then arranges with, through his contact, who is a, a government informant, uh, he sets up Gupta with the hitman, who is unknowingly a DEA agent. And DEA agent says, I'll do it for 100K, and I need a $15,000 down payment. So Gupta hires individual two, an associate of his in the United States, to hand over the $15,000 to the undercover agent. I presume this is all happening in New York City, but, you know, maybe that happened in an adjacent state and the hitman was to come to New York and carry out the assassination. But but I think this was all sort of happening in in New York. Um, So, yeah, this photo, I mean. Okay, okay, okay. okay. So I have to explain something to y'all right now. Whenever I'd go to India as a kid, you know, my family is like a lot of them are, you know, doing kind of well off like they've made their you know fortunes in business and so they would always often hand me cash as a sort of present like when i'd visit you know i was a, I was a kid i was like nine ten years old like you know and uh they'd always include one rupee extra and if you see in the back there there is one dollar in the background right and that's that's what i was explained to as a kid a sort of symbol of good luck it's a symbol of continued business because we don't want to hand you a complete hundred or a complete even number. We want to start you off on that next one so you can always aspire to that next goal to complete the fortune. So whenever you give a gift or give money to somebody, it's good luck, considered good luck or auspicious to give that extra one dollar. So when I saw this photo, the first thing jumped out to me was like, bro, this is the most Indian shit ever. Like $15,000 cash is a down payment, 15,000 and one, because we want to continue this relationship. Right. We want to ensure a good job is being done. It was so, I, I honestly laughed, but again, this is all this very dark humor. It's like, it's so funny. That is actually incredible. Yo, that's wild. That, that, that picture could solidify a suspicion 
that this isn't a one-time thing. They're actually trying to build a network and an ability to continue to assassinate activists again on United States soil. That's wild, man. I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't picked up on that. Yeah, I wouldn't have picked up on that. That's wild. That is, you know, and I, I'm just I'm imparting my own sort of maybe that's not the case with the dollar there, but I was wondering why is that dollar in the photo? And like to me, that's what it was. So this, you know, they they've got the photo documentation, and I'm I'm sure they've got a lot. If they took one picture, I'm sure they took a hundred, and so they've got all this evidence. They've charged this person, um, and and they've announced it. And now, you know, now that they've done this, now people are paying attention. It's not just the diaspora that's interested. You know, I, I posted this yesterday and I, you know, there were people who had no idea any of this was going on. They had no idea that there were suspicions of this stuff in Canada. They had no idea because this, this would be if if the allegations are true, this would this would have been what the fourth person who's accused of being assassinated by by the Indian state on foreign soil is that right especially in north america yeah, is exactly, that right He'll be exactly. the fourth person yeah so so there's three in north america uh, one happened in pakistan another person died of suspicious circumstances in the uk basically his family think he was poisoned and like a mm. you know very like russian s type thing he dude was like apparently like he was going hiking and stuff totally healthy 35 year old young guy uh, and then he just comes home, starts feeling sick, goes to the hospital. And then, like, I think the official narrative, he's died of, like, a really rare form of blood cancer. He's, like, totally healthy one weekend and just kind of collapses and dies. So his family thinks he was poisoned. He was accused of leading this protest um, where six in London stormed the, stormed the Indian embassy and took down the Indian flag, uh, which other people say he wasn't even there at that time when that happened. Um, but... You know, the Indian government is, or media has called him like a bomb maker and stuff. There's all these allegations, right? So, and and the big thing is, right, is even though that the Indian government has really distanced itself from that, and then of course the assassination that happens in Canada, that literally a Sikh leader at the Gurdwara where he's the president of is shot dead in the parking lot by masked gunmen. And this is happening again in June. It's starting to get, you know, it's really heating up in June as. Indian Prime Minister Modi is showing up, is getting ready to come to the United States, right? And they're they're still conducting, allegedly, they're still conducting this plot as he's arriving. It's right. It's it's like, dude, they yeah they assassinated Niger in Canada, allegedly. Um, I hate that I still have to say that, but allegedly they assassinated Niger in Canada. Two days before the meeting, two days before Modi's like welcomed with these wide arms, this and that. And, you know, so that's why it does take months for Canada to come out and sort of say all this. Right. So, it, yeah. it but it, it's wild. Right. Like because uh, Modi must know this is going on. And if he doesn't, well, his his administration, certainly someone in there must know what's going on. So quite bold, quite presumptuous. And look, all of this boldness, all of this bravado, if you will, it's coming from the place of, look, the United States needs to decouple with China. It needs India as an ally to geopolitically be positioned to compete with China, its biggest rival. And India knows this. Yeah. And under Modi's administration, they are pushing the window of what is considered acceptable and what is not 
And this is the whole bigger significance of all of this case is if India gets away with these assassinations, these attempted assassinations, if it's not held accountable for its behavior, what does that mean for democracy? What does that mean for freedom of speech? What does that mean to be an American or Canadian citizen in this day and age and to be a dissident abroad? So, so um, let's, but let's, but let's, let's go let's, ahead and check out India's response. Yeah, yeah, because again, let us, uh, as as the wise philosophers have said, uh, you got to hear both sides. So let us do that. Two sides, both. Sides. On the issue of Canada, uh, and so far let me back up here. Okay, so this is uh, okay. So this is the Ministry of External Affairs addressing last night uh, the U.S. allegations of India plotting against, as as the Times of India um, puts it, uh, the Khalistani extremist, Panun, right? So let, let's play this. Regards the case against an individual that has been filed in a U.S. court, uh, allegedly linking him to an Indian official, this is a matter of concern. We have said, and uh, let me reiterate, that this is also contrary to government policy. The nexus between organized crime, trafficking, gun running, uh, and extremists um, at an international level is a serious issue for law enforcement uh, agencies and organizations to consider. And it is precisely for that reason that a high-level inquiry committee has been constituted, and we will obviously be guided by its results. I've seen a series of questions that you've asked on this issue. I don't think anything there's anything additional that I would like to um, say on that. And I'm US Yeah. That's such a classic Indian thing where it's like Modi's never done a press conference. That I think one of the most historic things that came out of his visit to uh, the United States and Biden welcoming him was he did take his like first question ever from a journalist. Oh, um, he never addresses press conferences. He absolutely once has never done it, uh, and not in India, not from like any real journalists. Uh, you know, he's. He's gone on to like TV programs and, and whatnot, but it's all like, yeah, he's never taken a critical question in his life. Um, and so this this sort of, I see that there are questions, but I'm not going to get into them is to me, and that's the reason I was laughing. It's just classic India, really classic India. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, one thing he said, you know, it's not government policy. Okay, so there's the denial. Like we, this is not government policy. They're probably going to try to put some distance between you know, CC1, the government agent who sort of allegedly ordered all this um, and, you know, maybe try to create some bureaucratic uh, plausible deniability or something. That's my guess. That's my um, punditry, if you will. Uh, so don't quote me on that as like a, you know, fact or anything. But but one of the things he he did say in that, which was he mentioned this nexus of gangs and drug runners. This is important, right? Because he said that continues to be an issue for India. And the reason it's important is because that is basically the Indian story on why these assassinations globally are happening, uh, why the assassination of Niger happened in Canada. They're saying essentially this was a domestic feud of transnational Punjabi narco-terrorist gangs that have ties with these Khalistani elements and it was the result of two warring factions that essentially put hits out on each other and this is we had nothing to do with it right uh you know this is not our issue these are just gangsters doing their gang related 
things. Um, and so that is that is an important thing to sort of decoding that sort of diplomatic language a little bit. There, there's a bit more. Let's let's watch the rest of it. There's also query in Canada on the uh, issue of Canada, Canada. Insofar as Canada is concerned, um, we have um, we have said that they have consistently given space to anti-India extremists and the violence, and that is actually the heart of the issue. Our diplomatic representatives in Canada have borne the brunt of this. So we expect the government of Canada to live up to its obligations under the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. We have also seen interference by Canadian diplomats in our internal affairs. We've said this from this uh, podium, and that is obviously unacceptable. As you can see, you know, they, they're yeah. saying, listen, actually, the real issue here, I don't know, y'all worried about people dying. The issue, actually, is that Canada is making room for extremists and they're killing each other. And, they're, you know, there's a bunch of gangsters over there, all these foreigners, all these foreign terrorists. Canada, y'all got to stop letting these people do stuff. That's the problem. India has nothing to do with this. Y'all harboring terrorists right. over there. That is the Indian line, is that the Canadians are harboring terrorists and extremists and giving them a sort of free pass. Um, and, you know, he mentioned a few things that the Canadian diplomats and stuff are bearing the brunt of this, the Indian diplomats in Canada. Um, I I have to admit, I'm not 100 plugged in, but I believe there was some sort of vague threat made by some Khalistan activists uh, to some Canadian diplomats, perhaps. But I think the Canadian government has also uh you know um i think it it's investigating some of india's uh mm -hmm. diplomats there and expelled one diplomat who was their senior intelligence officer uh and in response india actually expelled 41 canadian diplomats and they banned visas or suspended visas temporarily i think they've revoked that ban since then but that affected a lot of Indian or Indian diaspora in Canada who are trying to go back and visit family like they couldn't go home. Um, so so both sides have definitely, you know, taken steps in this between Canada and uh, India that that feud has really escalated. But but what happens yesterday and the significance again of yesterday is India could probably afford to pick some sort of fight with Canada. Can it afford to pick that same level of fight with the United States when the United States Department of Justice is releasing allegations that are very explicitly tying an Indian government officer to hiring criminals, both in India and in the United States, to carry out assassin assassinations to, to kill political dissidents, kill American citizens? That is the question. And I think that is really where we'll see in the coming days what India's response is. But, but as you can see, it's not government policy is not the most satisfying response to that. <laughs> so, but, but we do got to hear out what the Indian Ministry of External Affairs has to say, and I'm sure they will be coming out with more as their inquiry goes on. Yeah. So one thing that we haven't addressed is the person who is the alleged target of this, again, alleged assassination attempt. Um, he now, of course, because he reads the news, is aware of this. And so he has posted on his Twitter account. Not going to call it X. I don't do that. Uh, but he has said, if death is the cost for running, this is a recent tweet that he made um, yesterday, actually, right after everything broke. He said, if death is the cost 
for running the Khalistan referendum. I'm willing to pay that price. This is in his tweet. And he further goes on to say, the assassination attempt on my life by India cannot deter me from organizing the voting for the independence referendum. And I am moving forward with organizing the American phase of Khalistan referendum on January 28th, 2024 in San Francisco. Okay, so we have a picture of the person here posing for his camera. Um, and I know you sent me over a video about yeah. this person. Who Who is this guy? Who 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 is allegedly that the United States government is is saying that India hated so much India that was so inconvenient to India that India felt like they needed to take him out to take him out. So who is Gurpatwan Singh Bandhu? You know that's a question I'd love to ask him one day myself um, because I've seen his name for several years now mm. and. Uh, and yeah, man, he's an interesting figure. He's certainly a polarizing figure who takes up a lot, a lot of oxygen and a lot of the Indian media. They love him. They love to hate him, rather. Mm. Um, and and the, even in the Sikh community, I've asked folks that are sympathetic to the cause of Khalistan but don't agree with this guy. I've I've spoken to folks that think he's like a might be a the secret agent of the government of India. I mean, people have all sorts of opinions of this dude. He is highly, highly controversial, and and I will try to try to get into it. But but to 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 start off, I think it is important to to just back to his statement really quickly. Um, understand what is it that he is doing. His main thing is he is the the sort of general counsel. And I think that basically means leader of a group called. Six for justice. He's also a lawyer, so I guess the general counsel means he's a he's a sort of you know lawyer for that group. Um, and Six for Justice is um, it's a group that is organizing these referendums for Khalistan, a non-binding vote, uh, basically yes or no question in the Sikh diaspora in different Sikh communities. Uh, I think they want to do it in India in Punjab as well. Should there be an independent Sikh homeland carved mm -hmm. out of India? called Khalistan. Uh, that's basically, I think, the center of his work, um, as far as I understand it. Now, this guy is super, super inflammatory. Um, you know, this this tweet and statement he's put out doesn't quite encapsulate it, so we're going to have to go play some of the clips in which he is saying a lot more controversial things. So let's, let's, let's run the tape. We're destination is India. Keep Canada with India. That I think this is just a clip from a news report quoting yeah. him. So, so we can just hear that soundbite. Yeah, <laughs> and you get the I, sense, right? He's basically just, telling Hindus to get the get the f out of Canada, like go back to India, right? It's a super mean and messed up thing to say. Of course, Hindus are allowed to be in Canada. Uh, so I don't know why exactly he said this statement, but. If I may put it in context, this statement came out after the assassination of Hardeep Singh Nijjar, that Sikh leader who was working with Bannu to set up a referendum in the Gurdwara that he was the president of. Uh, and so at this point, Bannu and the Sikh community in, in, in Canada, they're all raising the alarm. Look, India has been out here. They've been spying on us. They've been 
doing foreign interference. And now they've assassinated one of our community leaders that everyone really appreciates and loves and supports and respects. They've gunned him down in the Gurdwara, literally on the parking lot of a Sikh temple, a Gurdwara. That's what it is. And, yeah. and so if shooting the president of a Gurdwara 34 times in the parking lot isn't a political message and isn't an act of terrorism, then, you know, this is, I'm just trying to like contextualize the framework of someone like this, who is now coming out and saying these very hate-filled statements, like all Hindus in India need to get out. They, you know, he's basically implying they, they're not Canadian, that they don't belong. Um, you know, I don't think that's a nice thing to say. I don't think he should be saying that, but, but it is this sort of inflammatory hate speech. And the thing with it is, is this guy becomes the face of the Khalistan movement in India. He becomes like public enemy number one. He becomes the clips that all of the Indian news channels are broadcasting and playing. And, and when people... The, the, this idea of Khalistani terrorism and extremism in the diaspora, it's given these teeth because his clips are being broadcast over and over and over again in mainstream Indian media. So there is this feeling of India like, oh, these Sikhs in the diaspora, they do want to break up India. They do want to take us down. Um, and, 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 and it's in large part because of the way this guy does his messaging. Mm-hmm. Um if you can just play, so this this clip, the the you know, Indian well, I'm, I'm even looking Hindus. at some of these. I'm even looking at some of these comments. You know, I mean, you know, there are. Well, don't. No, 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 no. Let's look at the comments. Like, look at this. Like, let's look at the comments. All right. Like we we respect we respect six. They are you know they're the pride of Indian Army. Without them, India is never complete. But now some hatred. Is spreading among few, making many vulnerable, right? And so there are people who look at this. But then yeah. on the other side, here, look now. Now the world will know. This is called so-called freedom of speech and expression in Canada, right? Going down further, yeah. And Canada supports these elements. If Canada does not respect India's sovereignty, then it's time India also does not respect Canada's sovereignty. That sounds like somebody, frankly yeah. speaking, who would say, look, get rid of this dude. Like, get, yeah. get rid of him, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. And, and, so and, th- this, and maybe this I, I'm, I'm dismissing in- the comments because I've had it. I've seen them. But these are all valid. And these opinions are are very mainstream. Um, and that is that is at the center of this debate. I, I, I think that's what's going on here is, again, you're seeing, look. You ki- just imagine, right? You kill somebody or somebody dies. Somebody is shot 34 times at your place of worship in the parking lot. And tensions are already high. And then somebody comes out and says, hey, we're pretty sure we know who did this. And we want anybody associated with that, even loosely associated with that. Go away. Get out. There are a lot of people who are yeah, going to say it is. There, it, there is hate, people, it is hate speech. Yeah, and th- there are a lot of people who are going to say absolutely not, dude. No way. 
no way that's not cool man this is not what this is about this is the you know the government did this this is not the the friend that comes over you know the, the kids play together they're playing xbox this is not them they should stay here we because we're, we're all immigrants what are you even talking about my guy like stop but the fact that there's this one guy who says this as you said this person turns into the demonic face of the movement of the referendum you know everybody who signed yeah i i would like you know a homeland for us i think this is a good idea then now in the press everybody is painted with that one broad brush right you do what i'm saying right because there's look. a lot of people that 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 support the idea of khalistan that would say look khalistan if you're going to make a homeland for six it should be by those sick principles and that's what i began this discussion with was the founder of the sick faith he was saying there is no hindu there's no muslim we're all children of the same creator you know yeah. so so if if that's truly the case like a guy who is clearly organizing a referendum for an independent sick homeland shouldn't be coming out and saying hindus aren't welcome in the country i'm currently standing in right now like that makes zero sense the logic does not logic um and that's why a lot of, he is so controversial in in the uh in the sick diaspora um and of course in the indian mainstream as well uh, he's a well-hated terrorist extremist. I mean, he is a terrorist, according to India, right? Like he is labeled as a terrorist, and and you can see why in that next video that I've I've, I've linked as well, where he yeah. is literally well, well, let's play it. I mean, it's it is pretty. You know, he's saying some pretty crazy stuff. Again, I think it's it's important to realize why and why would why would he even feel like he could say this. You know what I mean? And then, exactly. and then why would exactly again, frankly speaking, why? And so would to so many Indians, and that is that is such a valid point. To so many Indians, they're like, all right, Canada is out here saying, the United States is out here saying, you know, you have a freedom to speak, you have free speech, this, that. But these are the things that these people are doing. Like we can't tolerate this. This is he's clearly making threats against uh, India, yeah. and and here is a very clear threat that he's making. Yeah. And let's so let's let's pull up this other one that you wanted to see. A lot of it's in Punjabi, so I'll just translate it. Okay. We are asking the sick punk to not fly here in India. Sick all right, you can cut it there. Yeah, so so what is he saying? He's saying after November 19th, 6, do not fly on Air India. Your life could be in danger. Wow. So so this is a particularly extremely loaded threat. And I will tell you why, because there's context. During that sick insurgency that began in the 1980s, and after 1984, the Indian invasion of the Sikh Holy Temple and the massacre of innocent civilians and pilgrims that had come here to pay their respects, this insurgency kicks off. Some of those insurgents migrate to Canada. And in 1985, they orchestrate a plot to blow up an Air India flight going from Canada to India. And they blow that up on, the, on its leg from Canada to the UK. So this is one of the biggest sick terror sick extremist terror attacks that have ever been conducted mm -hmm. um and that was that happened out of canada right and so the fact that this guy is out here saying don't fly air india we're going to shut down the new delhi airport after november 19th and six your life could be in danger if you fly air india 
it is to anybody knows history they know the dog whistles that he's making here he is a, a yeah. king of dog whistling like, he's not saying anything specific he's not like we're gonna blow up a plane but he is implying a whole lot to people that know what's up yeah. and and that is extremely you know that is something that the indian news media just totally jumped on of course they did right like this is a very serious threat i mean he's he's to indians this guy's a terrorist and if a terrorist is saying don't fly this airline it's kind of scary right like that's not not cool nothing happened we have to say that but look yeah. also to contextualize all of these threats he's making this is after the dude was being stalked by you know indian agents and basically trying to be assassinated these are all coming out after this guy he he knew there was a threat on his life. Why? Because actually, and I didn't link any of these, but it's interesting. There was this whole drama weeks after Nidra's assassination um, in Canada. Uh, Indian folks on Twitter start saying, Gurpatwan Singh Pandu has been killed in a car crash. He's been killed in a car crash. This rumor goes viral on July mm -hmm. 5th. So the, ne the next day he goes out to the UN. He's like, I'm still here. I'm still standing. Come out and get me if you have to. Uh, like he makes this sort of this statement standing in the yeah. UN. And if you now look at the case details that come out, like at, back then, I didn't like quite understand why these rumors were coming out, this, that and the other. But now you look at the the indictment that the United States has has put out and you see the timeline and it all makes sense because all of those, uh, you know, the Indian government agent, Nikhil Gupta, they're all pushing these alleged assassins to or the, 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 the U.S. federal agents who were posing as hitmen to to get this done by the end of June. They were pushing him once Ninja's assassination. They're like, go, do it now, do it now. They were they were really trying to get him to just carry it out as soon as possible. Yeah. And and so this messaging, I don't know, like we we all in the media, in the diaspora, in India, we can all, you know, see his threats and these, you know, really inflammatory hate statements he's making. But I think none of us truly can understand if there is logic behind it, truly what is going through his mind until we know the full context of this. The Indian government was trying to assassinate, did assassinate his friends, did have an active threat out in his life that I'm sure he was aware of as well and was probably trying to take active measures in his own life to sort of to 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 escape and not be killed um and and so all of these threats he's making are have to sort of be seen in that context and i suppose to a guy like him you know the if if a foreign government is coming and killing your associates and your friends and you think that you are advocating for your own country and there's popular support for it and it's just being incredibly repressed by the state I mean, you probably personally take this as like an act of war. And so, I don't know, not to justify, and I'm not trying to justify terrorism. I'm yeah. not trying to justify his hate-filled speech. I'm not trying to justify what he's doing because, you know, I personally think what he's saying is not cool, but there's context to it, is my right. point. And that yeah. context is everything that's come out in this recent indictment. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I think I think that's important. Right. And I think it's an important distinction is because I think 
as someone watches us, as someone listens to us explaining this context, truly it is context. It's why it, th this isn't random and senseless threats, as abhorrent as one may feel like they may be. You know, I, for me, I think anyone telling anyone telling anybody to get out of Canada or anywhere, you you've officially lost me. Right. And from what I know of the Sikh tradition, you don't tell somebody to leave because of their religion or their ethnic background. You just straight up don't do that. That it's it's actually, as you said, it's incompatible. And so this guy at that stage. You, you, I think you've lost most people who believe in any sort of, of frankly, peace. Right. That being said. Okay, now let's try to understand why he's saying this. Where would this come from? These are the things in the background. And with all the things that have come out, this person is going to sound a lot less crazy. If you thought this guy was completely out of his mind, making things up, had some kind of persecution complex, now maybe somebody was actually trying to get this guy. Absolutely. It sounds a little less crazy. And here's the thing that, you know, when I've talked to folks who are supporters of the Khalistan movement in the diaspora. Here's the thing they always refer me back to. The United States and India have an extradition agreement. In that extradition agreement, there are clauses that say it doesn't matter what your nationality is. If somebody is doing something that falls under the conventions of their extradition agreement, the, the parties to that extradition agreement agree to send those people back to the other country to face trial. So, so if this guy, Bannu, who's saying all these things, all this hate speech, if he was actually plotting them, if he actually had a network of terrorists trying to orchestrate these events... Well, if United States government had intelligence or knowledge about that, then they would extradite him. If he was doing the things, if he was actually executing the threats in which he is making, mm -hmm. which are criminal acts, which are not legal, which would fall under these sort of terms of extradition, because India has called him a terrorist, the United States would send him to India to face trial, to, to go to right. jail, to, to do all these things. Because... We as Americans have that agreement with India, an extradition agreement. And the Indian government tried to get a red inter, Interpol red corner notice put out on Bundu a few years back. And Interpol came back and said, y'all don't have enough evidence for us to issue this, this sort of warrant. And that's the same thing from my understanding of what happened with Niger. A lot of people commented in the, in the, the TikTok I had made about um, the assassination of the Canadian guy, uh, the Sikh leader. And he's like, oh, why didn't you mention that he was a terrorist who had this red poll notice? Well, actually, Interpol, once again, did not keep that red poll notice up because they challenged it and they found out that there wasn't enough evidence. So, so yeah, India can say to Interpol, look, these guys are terrorists, but if they don't have enough evidence to back it up, then the United States and you know countries that are according to India, harboring these terrorists, they're never going to send them back because they are their country citizens. And if there's no evidence proving the crimes or th that India is alleging, why are they just going to send them back to a country right. that is going to you know, 
throw them in jail and and God knows what to them. Because um, clearly, and, and, and that's the thing. Fundamentally, this is what's so outrageous about all of this. India is taking law into its own hands and trying to enforce it. It's trying to be the arbiter and executioner of what it thinks is right based on its extremely nationalistic principles and entirely, not entirely, but very um, polarized propaganda narratives that exist, right? If this guy truly is the criminal that you say he is, if he's truly the terrorist that he say he is, then there are there is infrastructure that exists between the United States and India, between Canada and India right. for criminals to be sent back to face justice. Why not pursue justice in these official channels? Why hire criminals to go and assassinate these political dissidents abroad? Again, the extradition agreement exists because, listen, India, if there's somebody who's truly causing problems for y'all and is actually committing crimes, we'll send it to you. Because if there's somebody in the United States, you know, there's a United States citizen who's in India and is causing problems for us and is going to get somebody hurt over over here. We we want this agreement there. We need to have a channel so we can send like, let's exchange criminals. If, if there's a criminal over there that we want, please send them. And if we got somebody that you want, we'll tie, we'll tie a bow around them and send them to you. No problem. We, let, let, let's make sure that this let's make sure we have an open channel of making sure that we can prosecute these people according to our rules. Right. But this is the big thing according to the rules so it looks like what what a lot of people are going to see this as they're going to look at it and they're going to say hold on a second it looks like what happened here is india wanted this person and then you know as neutral a body as could exist looked into it said this guy's not committing any crimes i know you don't like him but we're not just going to send him to you because this is going to be a problem we can't just send you anybody you want there's got to be real reason for this india said oh damn we can't go the legal route. All right, let's play 100K and just knock this guy off. That's what this is going to look like. Right. And it's hard. It's going to be hard to begrudge somebody for seeing it that way. Because that's the order of events. Yeah. There's a very well-respected uh, journalist. Uh, I think he's the editor-in-chief of The Wire, Siddharth Vardarajan. Um and he has put out this very good analysis of what's going on. I wanted to highlight a few of the the, the sort of um, analyses analyses that uh, Vardarajan has made because he's a he's a really really prominent journalist in India. I believe he was the either current editor in chief, former editor in chief of The Wire, which is a great mm -hmm. news outlet. If you want to follow Indian news, uh, highly recommend them. But one of the things that, firstly, like why why did this happen, like. Can we, uh, and, and I think, you know, he addresses this in this section called, is the threat overblown for political reasons, right? So the, the headline of the article from Nidra to Panu, Modi's government's recklessness is undermining national interest. Like, all right, straight up, this regime is like green lighting criminals to go assassinate dissidents abroad. Okay. So yeah, that's going to damage your credibility abroad. Mm -hmm. But why does Modi's regime think that they can get away with this. So he kind of summarizes three factors, which have all been sort of in my own mind as well. Anybody who's kind of reading politics will, will sort of get into this. 
Um, one. So it's that section towards the bottom, uh, threat overblown for political reasons. Yes. Uh, there you go. So number one, Modi's government is keen to paint the Khalistan movement as larger than life for domestic political reasons. Now, whenever, you know, you talk about foreign relations, um, people always do get caught up in these loopholes. Oh, you know, if we're discussing Israel-Palestine or if we're discussing Ukraine, what does it mean for Russia? What does it mean for America? No, no, no. You always need to start with domestic political reasons. You always need to understand what does it mean to the people in the country that it's happening in. Mm. And for Modi's po domestic political base, this is, goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Modi rose to power in 2019 and consolidated an even bigger majority in parliament because he had this strongman messaging of, I am the Chokidar or guardian of India and I will keep you safe against foreign extremist terrorism. And at that time, the threat was militants and extremists and suicide bombers coming in from Pakistan and blowing up Indians. And there was this whole fear that Pakistan insurgency would come in. And so Modi came in, he got reelected, and he immediately stripped Kashmir of its autonomy and just cracked down on that state and has quelled the resistance. And that's been a Hindu, national, a Hindu nationalist objective since the moment India was founded. So he did the job. He completed the job for that. That was a huge goal. And now that he had succeeded in that, the idea is there's another threat. We need to, mm. to, to see another threat in order to be a strong man again, in order to rescue India again from the threat. Now, the biggest opposition that Modi has faced mm. in his whole career was the farmers' protest. That was led by Sikh Punjabis. And if I, you remember when I was telling you the Sikh insurgency that came about in the 1980s also began from a huge agrarian uprising, a huge yeah. uh, political discontent with the way the central Indian state was taking away the rights of farmers, were taking away the water rights, was making life for farmers very difficult. And so when you see this massive groundswell of farmers, I mean, this was called the world's biggest protest in history, period. Yeah. On the biggest day of that protest, 250 million people went on strike on the same day. That is like almost the population of the United States. Yeah. It, say, it was, say that it again. It was a massive movement. Say that again. 250 million people, 250 million people, a quarter of a billion people went on strike in one day. I mean, this is a, a significant portion of the world's population going on strike against Modi's farm laws. This was the biggest unified resistance against the Hindu nationalist movement that took root for more than a year. These, these farmers blockaded New Delhi highways in an ongoing struggle against the corporatization of uh, agriculture in India. But... Underneath all of that was this theme of resisting against this nationalist, unified power that was centralizing power in the center. And, and so the way I see mm -hmm. this, and a lot of Western analysts who will write up, you know, the, 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 the idea of the Khalistani boogeyman, it's only a diasporic pipe dream. The New York Times ran like a headline like that at one point after Niger's assassination. The idea of Khalistan is only this pipe dream that exists in the diaspora. Well, it exists 
in the diaspora, and it's beneficial for domestic political gain to Modi, to the right-wing Hindu nationalist movement, because when folks like Bannu come out and say these inflammatory things, it helps manufacture this narrative that there is this legitimate threat to Indian sovereignty, Indian security, and the safety of everyday Indians because of these Khalistani terrorists that are abroad and want to revive the insurgency to break up India once again. And so that narrative is extremely beneficial to Modi as he heads into the 2024 elections, as he heads to position himself as the savior and guardian of India once again, because he's done it before. And a lot of people think everything that's been going on now Mm -hmm. is a way for him to project that image once again. Yeah. So that's number one. Yeah. And let, you know, let's number two, let's not forget again that as somebody brought up, Modi took us to space. Yo, yeah, man. India's on the moon. First ones to touch down. I'm excited. Hell yeah. Dude, I'm proud. I'm brown and proud. Like, you can't take that away from me, all right? Like, I'm I'm still an overseas citizen to this day of India, all right? I'm still an overseas citizen of India. Um, And and that, you know, I'm proud of my people, yo. Like, we, 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 that was everyone. That was all of us. This is this experiment of India, you know, everybody trying to live together on Wonder Gup under one, like, thing. I mean, yo, again, you have to look at India as like the European Union entirety of it decided, okay, you know what? We're actually going to be one country, even though we have 30 whatever different languages. We have hundreds of millions of people. Yo, India is way more diverse. India's got 22 official languages, but like 500 unofficial languages. It's got like 29 different states. Like this is an insane project, an insane experiment in trying to get all of these different people to live under one system. And that's, it is, you know, coming with these hiccups, but there is this nationalist group that wants to tell everybody, this is what it means to be Indian. You must be Hindu because India is a country for Hindus. Uh, you must, bo- you know, speak Hindi and, and belong yeah. to Hindustan, right? Like they want to consolidate this identity and crush the diversity of the country. The thing that makes that republic so great, you know, in my opinion, again, these are all opinions my personal well, opinions. Well, it's it's uh, it's analysis and I think it's analysis that makes sense because you know, I mean, we're, you know, you and I right now we're both living in and also famously uh referred to as a as a large experiment, you know, the American experiment. And I think there's very, you know, interesting and wonderful things that have come out of that experiment, also genuinely terrible things that have come out of that uh experiment, you know, that the, the experiment of democracy um you know, founded on genuinely terrible things really might i add but you know there are things that there are two ways to bring people together one is public works one is impressive feats you know yo we went to space hell yeah india we look what we did look what we've done that's one way aspirational the other way is defensive and if you would like to keep making these accomplishments we really need to come together and kick out or suppress these people who want to tear us down these terrorists these separatists right this is this is it is a strategy and it's a strategy we've seen everywhere that the the thing thing about the nationalism in the united states yeah exactly after 9 11 how did this country come together how were we so sold on the idea like let's invade afghanistan let's invade iraq you know yeah 
it, it, it creates, you know, the idea that there is a terrorist threat and it's this minority group doing it. Like it, it is a very powerful nationalistic force and we see them playing into that. So number two, foreign adventurism for a domestic game. Now, I didn't realize this because I had kind of like glossed over the story, but when that Dubai ruler's, uh, you know, daughter, I think like the princess, she like escaped the country. Uh, it was like an Indian team that went out and like captured her again. Uh, so this idea of, you know, India has like this foreign adventurism, um, like the, like it can, it can go to other countries and do things. I mean, that is surely a sign of uh, superpowerhood that you can go to other countries and enforce your will. And in this that's, quote, this that's something... modern game. Yeah, here we go. Boom. You got we it. will enter their homes and kill. We will get in their homes and kill them. And that, you know, came on the heels of when Modi did uh, respond to that Pakistani, you know, backed insurgent who blew up these soldiers. They they flew the the, the airplanes over into Pakistan and conducted the surgical surgical strikes and took out terrorist outposts. Allegedly, I mean, I think the Pakistani claim they hit a bunch of trees. I don't really remember what the truth was out of that. But anyway. The whole point is, can India assert itself abroad? Mm. And when it does, I mean, even though all of this stuff has failed, go to my Twitter and watch, look at the comments underneath this most recent video. Go to my, I think the Instagram's been a bit more tame. Yeah. But when you post about these things, Indians are proud. People who have like the Indian flag as their, as their you know, uh, profile picture, they're like, yeah, he got what he deserved. Like he got what he had is coming. Like, it doesn't matter if we got caught or not. Like, people don't give a damn. They are hyped that their administration is willing to go at all costs to take out the terrorists, to take out the threats to national security. And because they've been convinced that these people genuinely are terrorists and are threats, and, you know, part of that is these people making these ridiculous statements themselves that helps do that convincing, but it does create this atmosphere of polarization of people not willing to talk to to each other to understand genuine grievances that you know look these, there's a minority group in india that feels that it's not being represented by this administration and it's not been admit, represented by previous administrations because one of the things that i think these analyses fall short on is we tend to hyper focus down into Modi, 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 Hindu nationalism, Hindu nationalism, Hindu nationalism. And that's actually not the entire picture. The problem with Sikhs and that people who speak about Sikh political activism repeatedly raise is it's not just this administration and don't Western liberals, white liberals in America who, you know, see Modi as a problem or whatever, don't delude yourself. It's not just him. This is the Indian state. This is the machinery of statehood that is systematically across administrations, across political lines, work to suppress sick political activism. And people who I think have smart opinions on sick sovereignty as a political philosophy mm -hmm. and aren't just saying hateful things that incite the public and create fear and this and that their biggest thing is look what modi is doing now with taking up and green lighting or what his regime is doing now with what modi's regime is doing now with green lighting assassinations abroad of political dissidents 
is taking on a second chapter of the genocidal repression of counterinsurgency that the Indian state, under a totally different, which is now considered the opposition party, undertook in the 1980s and 90s against Punjabi Sikhs and so-called Khalistanis in India, Modi is taking on that state's project, his regime is taking on that state's project, and is continuing that those same policies of not using legal methods, not using the law, not using the framework of what democracies are supposed to do, but just going out there and getting the job done without regards to human rights, to, you know, essentially uh, anything that is supposed to be the norms of democracy. Yeah. And I think that is the thing that, you know, in a lot of the analysis that you're going to see about this, they're going to put the blame on Modi. They're going to, but, but let's not be fooled here. The history shows that this has always been the relationship between Punjabis, Sikhs, and the Indian center. This has always been the relationship of marginalized ethnic groups around India because, you know, they don't always have enough to represent themselves and their own interests in the center. And, and that is, I think, a really valid point uh, that also is worth making. Yeah, well, I think this is going to look familiar from a couple of different directions, right? Again, um, from the Sikh point of view, you know, from some point of view, from Punjabi point of view, this is going to feel like, I remember 1984, this is feeling really familiar, and this is feeling really unsafe. Now, from the centralized state point of view, this is also going to be familiar, because as you were saying, the largest protests ever again a quarter of a capital b billion people protesting on the same day this is coming from the same place that was causing us problems in the 80s and so i might not even be part of the same party but i remember just from reading history that these separatists these activists some of whom were outwardly said hey we're down to be violent if y'all want to be violent let's go some of whom weren't but they were all problems I remember what we did in 84. And you know what? In retrospect, this is not me speaking. This is not Dexter speaking. Um, in retrospect, it did the job, right? Maybe it wasn't the cleanest way to do it, but it was effective. And now these same people, this same area, you know, these same agrarian people are causing me problems again, causing us, not just causing me problems, causing the unity of the nation problems. I remember what we did back then. I also remember what our big brother in democracy, the United States, has done when they've had problems, both domestically and abroad. <laughs> Maybe it's time to take some, you know, take a page, take a couple notes off the musical staff from, you know, our, our senpai over in the States. It, it's, it's hard that's, not to read it like that. That's facts. That's facts. I mean, look, the United States coming up on a you know like i'm 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 thankful that we have such infrastructure to foil assassination attempts like this i'm thankful that you know there is somebody validating a white government if you will put it that way put when trudeau way. came out it was an incredible <laughs> sense it was 
incredibly validating to have Trudeau come out and say, yo, we think India was behind this. It was incredibly validating to read this yesterday and be like, yo, DEA agents have the photos, have the texts, have everything. Because for decades, six have been saying this stuff is going on. Mm -hmm. And it was just a struggle to get people to believe us. It was just a struggle to because there has been so much disinformation around everything around the insurgency. And look, I'm not saying that the Sikh militants were great people. Like a lot of them did atrocious things. Like I have so many friends in Punjab who come from Punjab who say, man, like our families, they were kidnapped by the Kartikus or the, the, you know, the, the militants of the time they were uh, terrible. Like there are saw like, you know, kids used to say, oh, like they would go hide in the closets because people would be saying that the Kartikus are coming, you know, like it was it was scary. And, and the Sikh militants probably did commit a bunch of atrocities. But that is now becoming the mainstream narrative. And only that is becoming the mainstream narrative. These Sikhs are terrible people, that they are terrorists, that they did horrible things in the 80s they, to Hindus, that they massacred them, this, that, and the other. There's almost zero acknowledgement of the scale and intent that the Indian government waged a systematic and widespread genocide, literally disappearing young people, taking photos, shooting them dead in the streets or in the fields, planting photos of, of guns on them and, and releasing that to the media, black, disallowing the foreign press and NGOs to come cover it in any sort of objective way to the point where like sick historians write things between like uh, 1.2 million people were killed during the Sikh genocide to, you know, as large as 1.2 million people to as little as like 10, a little more than 10,000. Like that's how big the numbers are. And nobody knows because then like, you know, Sikh human rights activists that back in the 90s went back to document disappearances mm. were then disappeared and killed by the police themselves. Yeah. Right. So it's like the amount of disinformation our community has been coping with and to not have any of that sort of recognized. Nobody recognizes it as a genocide, I think, officially yet. Yeah. But there's all of the telltale signs to what makes a genocide a genocide of what happened. And and even in this article that Brother Rajan writes, The Wire One, like he cites Ensaf, right? And he cites this group. And I want to read one thing he quotes. Incidentally, the head of RANW, which is the Indian CIA, basically, um, at the time Nidger was killed and the Panu plot was allegedly hatched by CC1, was a former Punjab police officer, Samanth Goyal. According to documentation prepared by Ensaf, dozens of enforced disappearances and extrajudicial killings in the 1990s were reportedly committed under his command during his tenure as the senior superintendent of police in various jurisdictions of Punjab. So the head of the Indian CIA, the head of India's RANW, was the guy who was the, the highest police chief in Punjab when this genocide was happening, when these assassinations, targeted killings, disappearances of young Sikhs, and this whole manufactured narrative of all these terrorists are here. They were literally extract, torturing these kids, put, getting false confessions out of them, and then murdering them, if not. I mean, that's, that's essentially what was going on back mm. then. The guy who, who, who oversaw all of those police operations was now 
the head of the RANW when these plots abroad were okayed. I mean, it just makes you wonder, like, have six ever gotten accountability? If the person who was the head of police that orchestrated these crimes against humanity back then, if he's now the guy conducting clandestine operations or greenlighting them abroad, I mean, it's no wonder that there are parts of the Sikh community where the where they really genuinely feel that there is no opportunity to reconcile with India, that an independent Sikh homeland is the only way to go. And I'm not saying that's my personal opinion. I actually don't know where I quite feel yet on, on that spectrum because all of these things are changing at this moment. And you see active attempt being made by the Indian state and its machinery to villainize Sikhs, mm -hmm. to alienate them, to paint them all as terrorists and anti-nationals and people who hate the country. But when the fact of the matter is so many people have not been held accountable for that genocide and continue to hold positions of power to continue to literally call the shots today, mm -hmm. they are the ones still in power. And then add on to that, that same treatment is happening in the diaspora. You know, because I mean, let's be real. If you don't, if you don't think that, you know, sick people are being, you know, sick are being treated like threats, like people who don't belong, like terrorists in Canada and the United States, I'm sad to say, uh, but that treatment is happening here too. And so, you know, the flavor may be different, and, and but I, I want to let the same. You dig? Like, I want to. I want to let anyone who's been with us for two hours and thirty-seven minutes and yes. hear me and Dex talk about this in on something that I haven't come out publicly and said yet, but uh, I feel that it's okay to do now. Um, a year and some months ago, I flew to India to visit my grandmother and my family, and I was mm. turned away at the border, despite the fact that I am an overseas citizen of India, uh, despite that I have a lifelong guaranteed visa to go to that country for personal reasons, to visit my family, to, you know, visit my religions, holy sites, and my cultural heritage, and all of that that still exists. I was turned around. I wasn't given a reason why. And when I came back to America, I wrote to the Indian consulate in New York City and I asked them, hey, man, what happened? Like, why couldn't I go? Uh, why didn't y'all let me in? I got no response. So I'm currently taking the Indian government, the Ministry of External Affairs, the Ministry of Home Affairs, the Indian consulate general in New York to court in the Delhi High Court. Uh, and I found out that I was blacklisted from India for my journalism that I did with Vice. I found out that I was banned from the country for allegedly creating propaganda against the state. And all of that has been incredibly alienating because as I told you at the beginning of this conversation, I grew up as one of the only Indians in my community, as one of the only six, as the only sick in my high school of several thousand kids. And my whole childhood after 9-11, repeatedly being called terrorists, repeatedly being told to go back to your country was Actually, going back to India in the summer times, visiting my family there, learning about the culture there, learning about the people there, falling in love 
with a part of myself that America did not yet know and coming back and proudly telling those stories. That is truly what got me into the field and career that I am in today. And to be put on a flight to go to India and then to be told to go back to your own country. And then when all that news broke, which I've not to this day until this moment made public comment about, to be have all these people on Twitter, on Instagram, wherever, just be calling me a terrorist, be calling me an anti-national, someone who hates the country, go back to your own country. It really brings me back to my childhood as growing up with a turban and a beard, my neighbors being like, yo, you're a terrorist, like you're Osama bin Laden's cousin, like go back to your own country, this, that, and the other. And it reminds me of why I got into storytelling in the first place. And I feel even more like the work that we do, it, it's, it's even more important. And yeah, I mean, it's, it is very scary too, to know that there is a hit list. There is a hit list that Sikh American activists are on, that Sikh Canadian activists are on, and that my name somewhere too is on a list in the Indian government. Now, it's certainly not a hit list, and I damn well hope that I don't ever wind up on one. And I don't think I should because I, I do still love that country a lot. You know, there's so much I got out of my visits as a child to that country and so much. You know, I'll speak, speak praise to India when it certainly deserves it. But I think part of a loving relationship is being able to call out the bullshit when there is. And I grew up seeing that hatred to minorities. I grew up seeing what that does to people. And I grew up making films to speak out against that. And I find myself in this very strange moment where six in the diaspora are dying or being killed or being harassed or, you know, some of them have been wrongfully imprisoned or, you know, imprisoned without trial in India when they go back. Um, there's so much going on to crush dissidents in the diaspora. And as somebody who's a journalist who just is talking about the facts, what is going on and trying to present that for an American audience, I do worry that continuing to speak about this could be dangerous. And it shouldn't be because I'm a, I'm a citizen of a democracy. I'm a child of the world's oldest and the world's largest democracies. I'm literally like, in a sense, the embodiment of if there should have ever been free speech, like it should be someone like me who is literally in between these two cultures, in between these two experiments that have only been around for a couple of hundred years at most. But this idea that we all have the right to speak up and say our mind and, and, and know the facts and share those facts with others, uh, you know, to, to see that really being challenged and tried to be terrorized into science for the better part of the year. Suppressed. Suppressed. I didn't say anything about India. I didn't cover anything about India, even though that was my whole beat advice for a long time because I didn't know what I could and couldn't say anymore. So I was self-censoring. And, and even I, it's taken me this long to even come out and say what has been going on in my own personal life. But 
that has been going on and it's affected me. And I know it doesn't affect just me. I know it affects so many, not just six, but anybody who comes from India who feels that in some way or another, they aren't represented by the majority. And it's not even a majority, it's a plurality that's kind of taken control of uh, you know, the government there. And, and it, it is you know, disheartening to a sense. And yeah, I guess that's all I'll say about that. But thank you all for, for, for staying with us to all 16 of you who are still on the street, five folks who are on my, my Instagram at this point. Um, appreciate y'all like listening really? to me, uh, go through this whole story. Cause it's, it's, it's really, it's really strange to also see all this happening and know that in some small way, I'm not just in the middle of the story because I'm a sick and I'm in New York and I'm an American, but because I'm also on an Indian government list at the moment. Well, I mean, and I I'm think, fighting to get my name cleared. Yeah. I mean, it's thank you for, because you, you, for real, everybody in chat who's watching this right now, Angan and I have talked about this personally before, and I knew why he never talked about it frankly didn't expect you to bring it up today um and i think there's a very argument for that being a very bad idea let's be real but that that is that is the thing yeah. this is precisely what we're talking about here is i mean look the chilling effect that we talk about i mean sophie brought it up here imagine for a hundred thousand dollars you could shut somebody you you could get rid of somebody who you don't like, but imagine how many other people you can shut up. Imagine that's cheap. That's lunch money. You know I mean, that's for, for a government, that's the equivalent of being in the grocery checkout aisle and say, hey, let me pick up that Snickers. What the heck? I got paid today. Why not? Like it's, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's, it, it's not even the cost of doing business. A hundred K is nothing. And so how cheap, is silence how cheap is suppression it, it actually doesn't cost that much all you got to do is one or in this case allegedly about four right and i cannot imagine what it is like because i have my own experience man but ours are different i can't imagine what it's like to spend a good portion of your younger life almost feeling the need to be proud of where quote unquote you're from, you know, big air quotes. Right. Um, and then going back and then having that place say, get out. You can't come here anymore. You don't belong here. Right. Like truly, where do I go? Pacific, the Atlantic, like, where do you want me to be? <laughs> right. Yeah, like, where, like you want me to be in between? Cause where there's people go? over here telling me I'm not supposed to be here. There's people over there telling me I'm not supposed to be here. Like this is this is beyond a it's beyond a you know figuring out you know where you fit in between a couple of cultures, where in that Venn diagram you are. This is beyond the double conscious. This is beyond what Du Bois is talking about. This is actually being told we don't like what you said. You cannot come here. And that implicitly means that again, if we just, you know, the the list, the list is a spectrum. It's a spectrum. There are people who need to be gotten rid of 
over here and there are people who just need to be shut up you're over here and that's it yeah but but people move along those spectrums right this is absolutely dangerous 100 percent. this is dangerous and you know again think about how hard it is and what personal risk people are taking to even cover this stuff because there is a way in which let me very briefly shift the conversation over to palestine just very briefly right it's not easy to talk about that and it comes at great personal risk particularly if you are from a certain background look man you could be jewish and be 100 pro-palestine cause and that is going to cause you some issues it's frankly for a lot of things it's easier to be somebody who is completely nobody's completely removed from anything but completely visually removed for something and you can just say man i'm just covering something that's happening in this weird far-flung area in the middle east i don't got any family there i don't got any people there this is just some weird stuff that i'm talking about whatever man but when this stuff actually affects you when it affects when you can go home when it affects what your family can and cannot do it's it's a lot you know what i mean it's a lot so i mean i i appreciate you saying that all of this but i also want people who are watching to keep in mind you know the the people who offer not only going directly somewhere and reporting about something and showing you what's going on i mean shoot i remember man me and you were talking about yo let's do some stuff about brown people that isn't like sad yeah you know i mean we just wanted to do cool stuff i remember having those conversations i mean this is early on this is actually also pre-pandemic we were just bro i've been trying to do this story about indian indian kids who are like pioneering space exploration for literally years it's like i genuinely want to celebrate that like when indians make it to the moon and are the first ones that make it there like i'm so happy yo like i'm like yes let's Anga was in control but Anga was just yo yo we went to the moon what are y'all doing like we got to talk about this moon stuff i don't know what you got planned but we need to talk about this moon thing and it's like all right bro (laughs) yeah yeah and it's 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 beyond a shame man and again the the people the very people who bring you and by you i mean the people in the audience and frankly basically everybody man i don't care if you if your connection to india is your whole family lives there or if your connection to india is you're seeing a brown dude on the screen for the first time and this is it <laughs> um but the the very people who bring you all of this stuff, so much of the culture, so much of the history, so much of the background comes from this underrepresented in terms of population, but really, as you said, punching way above the weight, overrepresented in terms of culture, man. Um, that that same population and that same diaspora that so many people have fled are in places like the United States or in places like Canada, and because that is the only place that they felt safe and now that they don't, and they feel like they can't talk about this stuff. And now they feel like, yo, this assassination attempt, let's, let's again, put all the allegedly's on there. It didn't work. Do you think now that people feel like it still had the effect? Let's, let's go back to this article here. Let's go back to this. Um, right. Because th- this is the, this is the third one. 
we were just saying this. The Modi government would have calculated that this strategy was a low-cost one. Because, yeah, like, look, again, $100,000, it's lunch money. That is, you know, candy money. It's nothing. But, of course, they screwed up a little bit by, you know, allegedly, by <laughs> trying. By hiring by an hi American federal agent. <laughs> yeah. Look, man, this is not advice. I don't want anybody out there watching the stream to, you know, put out a hit on somebody. But were one to do that, the least advisable course of action will be to hire an actual federal agent. That, that is not what one wants yeah, to do. But it is it is it is a low cost method of keeping people quiet. And there is a huge feeling of that in the Sikh diaspora, in the Sikh community yeah. of, you know, like I see folks in my comment section, you know, I don't support Khalistan, but this has gone too far. And it's like, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not necessarily an advocate or not an advocate. I, I'm still forming my opinions as I learn more. It's like, I have to learn my own history first, but, but. You know, like I, I like India. I want India to succeed. I think it's a cool country. I feel like I still, no matter where I go, like when I go to Peru on assignment for Vice, like people see me as Indian, no matter where I go in the world, yeah. I'm going to be representing India. And, and that's just how things are. So I always feel that affiliation and affinity, but, but come on to be, you know, if somebody doesn't feel that way, like let them express themselves, let them cast their ballots like why do you have to and if they are genuinely terrorists then get their asses extradited and send them back to face justice don't just be out here hiring criminals to assassinate people yeah. like that is not the way to do it that yeah, is just we, not it zero percent we, we've, we've got the documentation like we've got there's a there's a channel look at this treaty between the united states of america and india this was signed in 1997 there's a way to do it. If there's somebody out there who's truly causing you problems, democracy, due process, it's a way to do it. Guilty until, you know, proven, way excuse me, it. innocent until proven guilty. I almost slipped up as an American <laughs> speak. You know what I mean? I, I can look however I look. I still hold a blue passport, man. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm yeah, born and bred that here. That blue passport, though. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm actually passport. no, I got my I got my passport stolen actually. So at the current moment I do not have a blue passport, but I will oh, man. get it back. It's a whole thing, man. It's annoying. Um <laughs> but you know, but but for real, man, I think it is going to be interesting to see how this develops. And I think, you know, again, all this stuff is connected, dude. I mean I I Big shout out to everybody listening to this one, man, because we've been going on for hours, <laughs> actual hours on the same topic this entire time. But, you know, I feel like it's worth it because there is so much to get into. And we've still crashed, you know, scratched the surface. Like you really you really scratch the surface very, of what happened. In very much the surface. Yeah. you. I mean, we, we really scratch the surface of so much of this, but all of this truly is connected. Dude, and now, we're, you know, the United States is now there are people in the U at U.S., who have never given India a second thought, who are now pissed off. You know, there's somebody in middle America right now who is saying, hey, wait a second. Y'all sent, you're trying to assassinate somebody over here? 
You doing what? Nah, we're not with yeah. that. You can't do that. That's well, helpful. We'll see. We'll see how we'll see how this all shapes out, you know, because yeah. at the end of the day, there is there is a lot at stake with this India United States relationship mm-hmm. and that partnership certainly has a lot of potential, a lot of potential to do good for the world. Um but a lot of, you know, strategic business, there's a lot of different angles to it all and unfortunately, and call me the jaded journalist at this point, but you know, human rights doesn't always make the top of the list. However, when the evidence is this in your face, I mean, and this undeniable, like we we will just see. I guess that's the thing to follow is what steps does the United States now take to reprimand India? Because this yeah. is unacceptable behavior. And if nothing is done, well, here's the scary part. If the United States doesn't do enough to reprimand India, what message are we sending to more authoritarian regimes that are truly our adversaries about what is and is not acceptable? Mm -hmm. Because India is a partner. India is a democracy. So if democracy can get away with trying to assassinate Americans, then what the heck are dictators? And aristocracies and oligarchies and mm-hmm. monarchies and all of these other less free societies who are ruled by authoritarian autocrats, what are they all thinking watching these headlines? So this isn't just an issue that affects six. This isn't just an issue that affects Indians. This is truly something that anybody in America who is... Somebody who believes in the First Amendment should be concerned about because the stakes of what the way the United States handles itself and asserts its citizens' right to their constitutional amendment guaranteed rights and to protect those rights, the way the, the extent to which the United States goes to defend those rights is going to send a clear message to the whole world. And that is something that anybody who is still listening and is paying attention to this story should be deeply and genuinely concerned about i i think so and i think i mean more deeply concerned would be people who are and i don't even got to name names but think of think of there's a few wars going on large you know wars that are taking up a lot of space um and there are people who live in the United States who have roots in the, you know, who have roots back there, but they're, you know, some of American citizens, some just have family here, some are visiting. As you said, if, if another democracy, if the world's largest democracy is able to allegedly carry out an assassination on U.S. soil, there are people who are less democratic who are going to look at this and say, what can I get away with? There's some people who are activists who have roots in my country and we can put whatever, you know, there's there's a few countries in Africa that I could list off. There's a few countries in the Middle East that I could list off. There's a few countries in Asia that I could list off. Maybe even Europe that I could say, I'm from this country. I got some, there's some people over the United States that I don't like. If India could get away with this, 
I wonder what I could get away with. Maybe I could push the envelope a little bit further. I, I think that is something that I think a lot of people probably right now who have ties in those countries that got people back home. And let's be real clear. If you don't think that there are journalists, if you don't think that there are activists, if you don't think that there are just regular people at the grocery store who have family back home, wherever back home may be, I can guarantee you that some of them are looking at this news and saying, if India can do that to one of their own, what can my, what can my home country do to me? Because they might not apologize. But they might not pretend they didn't do it. They might just say, yeah, it was us. What you going to do about it, America? We don't like you anyway. This is not a good precedent, is what yeah. we're saying. This is not a good precedent. Precedent. It is, it, is, it is really a challenge to American sovereignty. It's yeah. a, a, a challenge to the free world. It's a challenge to the right for people to be a dissident, to speak mm -hmm. up. And yeah, once again, it's a, it's a challenge to the rule of law. Yeah. Right? Well, it's and, a challenge and, to yeah. the rules-based order that America goes and hypes up and talks about globally. Yeah. Like, if we don't have these rules, if, we, if you aren't going to play by the extradition rules, if you aren't going to play by these international conventions, you're just going to... What is even the point of having a border? What is even the point of having a nation if yeah. you're allowed to come here and kill anyone you like and I'm allowed to go there and kill anyone I like? So that is that is fundamentally, I think, the question, the bigger question yeah. that this attempted and foiled botched assassination really yeah. raises to all of us. Assuming that what the United States uh, findings are are true. You know, we'll see how it plays out. We'll are true. Plays out. Yeah, yeah, and big allegedly. But, but yo, I mean, but again, maybe to, to wind it up, this is where this becomes that funny word, right, bipartisan, because... People who couldn't care less about India don't like India, don't like Indians, don't like brown people. You can go as far right as you want to go. At the moment at which your borders don't mean anything, because if somebody can come over and direct the killing of somebody inside of your little border, frankly, the further right you are, the bigger of a problem that is for you. Like if, if, you if you really with it, with the Republicans, if you really, really bout it and you want borders, if you want to build the wall, this is a big problem for you. This, this should be a really huge problem for you because what this means is that that wall doesn't exist. What this means is that those imaginary lines don't exist anymore. And if you are about making America great again, if you are about a strong nation, if you wit it with Daddy Trump, you don't like this intellectually. But if you set the precedent or if you allow the precedent to be set that someone, a foreign entity, can come cross your borders and kill somebody just because they feel like it, doesn't matter if they're a U.S. citizen or not, doesn't matter if they're brown or white, you have an intellectual quandary that needs to be solved. And now... The pressure is going to be on the Biden administration to figure out how do you handle this? How do you handle 
dealing with something that your Justice Department has said that a foreign entity, your partner, has committed a crime. This would be much easier if it was Russia. It'd be much easier if it was China. It's India. This is very inconvenient. But now the Biden administration has to figure it out. So what do we do? Keep watching the news, yeah. I guess. <laughs> Keep watching the news. Let's let's see how this all shakes up. But Dex, I want to thank you for making the space for this. It's been uh, it's been a it's been a crazy few days to to see all this news and and sort of get a sense of all of this really being exposed. And I think there's going to be a lot more to come in the in the days uh, that follow. So maybe we'll be back to talk about it more. This is this has been a long one. For real. You know, this is truly one of the things that I think is helpful about a format like this is that we don't have to limit ourselves to a 30 second soundbite. We don't have to limit ourselves to a 400 word article. You know, if somebody wants to know, they can come through and they can stay as long as they have time for watch it later. You know, we're, we're, we're treating what I like about this. is We treat people like they're smart. Or treat people like they want to be smart. You can be yeah. totally un, you know, totally uninformed on something. Like we respect your intelligence, is what I'm saying. Like if you want to know, cool, man. We'll we'll tell you everything we know. And if we don't know something, we'll let you know too. But yeah, man, thank you for coming through. Thank you for coming through. Um Thanks let's for do hosting. it again. Let's do it again. Absolutely, man. And uh yeah. Always. All right, I'll I'll do the outro, but we'll we'll talk soon, man. Thanks again. Peace. And that is it for episode, what is it, three? I think this one's three. Uh, big shout out once again to Angus Singh for coming through and spending over two hours uh, a time really breaking things down for everyone. And just to wrap this one up, because like I said, it was a really long one. Thank you for sticking around, by the way. Um, all the information that you need, all the articles that we reference, all the documents we reference, that's all in the show notes. Uh, I know that I really should make some kind of site or, or something that holds all this stuff just to make it a little bit easier so you don't have to, I don't know, man, scroll through the, the Apple Music section or whatever. I don't know, man. I'll figure that out at some point. But until then, um, as always, and I'm still going through the backlog, so I got a couple extra ones to upload. But every Tuesdays uh, at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. L.A. time. Uh, I go live on Twitch, and that's twitch.tv slash DexDigi. I'm also on YouTube, and I've also started streaming on Instagram itself. So if you want to follow me on Instagram, that's D-E-X-D-I-G-I. And uh, I don't know if you have a problem figuring that out. You can just copy-paste it from wherever you found this podcast, however you found it. But anyway, that is it for this one. Once again, thanks to Angit Singh for coming through. Hope to have him back on again. Thank you for tuning into this one and hope you see you or hear you on the next one. Stay in tune.